0: Welcome to Doing Sustainability, a podcast that features practical and actionable approaches to sustainability, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we have enlightened conversations with corporate and business leaders on the vision, motivation, actions, and impacts of sustainability.
1: We discuss best practices, fresh perspectives, tips, and solutions. To help a company demonstrate its ESG commitment, and position themselves for long-term success. Hi,
0: I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's start the show. Today, we're talking with Noah Miller. Noah is the founder and chief officer of ESG Advisory Services at Roe Impact. They combine ESG Advisory software and technology tools to address the key barriers to ESG performance. We're going to love to dig into that. That's uh, something that we're really interested in. He's also the founder and managing director of Calibrate Partners. where a no BS network of ESG firms that partner to support organizations around the world in adapting to the new normal of business. Again, no BS. Great topic for today. <laughs> We're going to hit that one hard. Let's uh, do it. Yeah, Noah is also an ESG subject matter expert and advisor at the Corporate Finance mm-hmm. Institute. He's also lead ESG consultant at, I can't pronounce his word, Noah. Kennedy. Yes. yes, ESG Accelerator Program at ESG Excel. He's also ESG advisor and liaison to North America for Net Zero Israel. And he currently volunteers for the following roles as a board member a Vermont Business for Social Responsibility and ESG Advisory Committee member at the Green Building Initiative. I'm out of breath, Noah. That's a- <laughs> I know you got
2: me tired just talking about Yeah, that. Man,
0: <laughs> I love it. You're, I love you're doing a lot out there. Welcome.
2: Thank so, you for having me.
0: Yeah, so I'm just curious, and so this is maybe if you've listened to a previous podcast, you've heard this question, but when you were a very, very young boy, Before your parents or the world told you what to do, what did you like to do? What interests you as a very young boy?
2: Yeah, I would say ultimately, and it's funny you ask that because I found a a letter that my parents recently sold my childhood home of my 10-year-old self writing to my future self, Hmm. and it was ultimately framed around, I want to help people, whether it's fighting climate change, addressing poverty fighting terror, which has been part of the MO in the past. I want to help people. Luckily, whether it's whatever the mechanism, the vehicle has been, I've been fortunate enough to follow that compass kind of throughout my career around how can I get in the game in addressing problems that cause human suffering and and make life a little bit easier because it's hard enough already. That's kind of been the core MO, I think, throughout my career. Okay.
0: Okay. And you realize this as a young person, very, very young person.
1: fantastic.
2: I, you know, I was lucky enough to go to a school that was very active in sort of personal development and reflective yeah. practice yeah. and kind of gave me, I think, the DNA no, of being able to do the reflective work, look inside to then work outside. Yeah,
0: no, I get it. Uh, being of service is one of our values. And mm-hmm. it, just like you, it's about helping people, you know, yeah. so that's fantastic. I want to talk about the work you do at Row Impact. What are some of the key barriers to ESG performance for a company? Tell us about that. What are the barriers? How do you identify them? The tools you need to address them?
2: Well, it starts sort of more philosophical, and then I'll get tactical. You know, philosophically, I would say apathy is one of the barriers, a lack of information and imagination, as well as a lack of reading the tea leaves, right? We're in a time where every stakeholder, your customers, employees, investors, local communities, everyone expects companies to do more than make a profit at this point. And it's good business to do more than make a profit at this point because of that loyalty that we're seeing. Tactically speaking, one of the key barriers to ESGA performance is you're trying to focus on every ESG issue that exists. And then it becomes overwhelming. It becomes fruitless. You start to want to sort of touch everything that's good, rather than focusing on what's good for your business and your individual stakeholders. So I think that's one of the key, perhaps the number one barrier is just lack of context and lack of context for the business and the people in organizations that your business depends on. That's really the front end of a lot of this work. And without really understanding what's material to our growth strategy, to our business model, new product lines, new services, What's critical to our customers, our investors, our prospective customers? That's where you start to get the competitive differentiation in value versus the fluff, which is we gave money to the Little League and then we did to the local YMCA. We wanted everyone to feel good. That's not really ESG, right? That's corporate philanthropy. It's all good and great. But what we're talking about really is adapting your business model for today's business conditions, not paying to play, so to speak, in this space.
1: Rufus. Absolutely. And also, employees understanding, you know, yes. what's your goals and what you're aiming for. That's one of the things that we find sort of lacking in some of the puzzle is really oh, sure. get the whole team behind it. That's so, such you know, a great point. Yeah. Give me an example
0: of a company. Are they a public corporation? Are they small cap, mid cap? We you know that the large cap companies that are well be taking care of this. But if you could give me an example of a company that you know.
2: Yeah. So we at Row Impact, we're an ESG advisory and software company. We work with branding and public companies to the two-person team trying to make renewable energy out of bubblegum, you know, something far-fetched like that. Mm-hmm. So one example is all the way from the Mitsubishis of the world to trying to look at my... Mamava, the innovators of the Lactation Pods, who is actually a recent client and is right next door to me across the building. And I just say that because I know they're fresh and talk about another business that's really innovating and creating an industry like the lactation infrastructure industry. And I'm a father of young kids, so it's personal, but that's an example of the the Mitsubishis of the world to the Mamava's of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, terrific. With Calibrate
0: Partners... You say there you're a no bs network of boutique ESG firms that partner to support organizations around the world and adopting to the new normal nor- business so a couple things.
2: Tell us about the no bullshit what is that
0: Absolutely. Mean?
2: yeah well, that really is you know kind of a short and sweet way of um, we are not a greenwashing enabler of people, which is how a lot of Folks are out there doing the work, you know, they're helping people put reports out that could ultimately get them sued, but they don't have that experience nor of that vision to know that those are the implications. There's also a lot of interpretations of what this work is. Some people uh, will put their stake in the sand of it is doing everything that's good for everyone all the time. Folks that work in the space will tell you it's about managing the risks and opportunities of a changing environment, changing stakeholder needs, and changing management practices. So when we say no BS, it's the short and sweet way to say, we are not putting on this jersey, so to speak, and playing this game for the first time. We are varsity players that have played this game our, our entire careers. And I have the BS element for, I have vetted them, and I have worked with them, and I feel confident bringing them into projects I'm working on, and vice versa. So it's almost like the insider crew of folks that I would put my stamp of approval on of other boutique shops that I've had some experience working with in the past.
0: Yeah. Have you on? Uh, do you know of a woman named Allison Taylor?
2: She's, I do, I do, yeah, from NYU.
0: She's yep. the uh,
2: executive director of
0: Ethical Systems there, and she's she's working on a book. And she posts constantly. She was a guest early on. And, oh, very cool. And no BS is the only way I can describe her because she's <laughs> always calling people out on bullshit, and that's what she's all about—is calling people out on bullshit. And it's just really kind of interesting following her and just seeing turning over all these rocks and all this stuff falling out from under. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it right. look, it'll look like a nice question. It look like a nice shiny rock. And <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: so, how are you defining the new normal? Yeah, great question. So, at this point, whether we call it the age of ESG or you know the impact economy, and not getting too deep into what's what versus what's what. We're in this time where not only do consumers care about this, but B2B buyers are not doing business with folks that cannot meet their ESG criteria. And that's at this point, it's part of the cost of goods sold. The cost of doing business is you need to show your ESG performance, you need to have your data readily available, and you need to be able to speak to these subjects so that you're able to drive the ESG commitments of your buyers. And I would say the same thing goes for folks that are looking to fundraise, where at this point, you cannot say, Trust me, trust the numbers. Can I have some money, ma'am and sir? It's has there been third party verification? What was the methodology? Where are all the assumptions and data points that were used to derive that impact claim that you're saying is being done? So it's becoming akin to financial modeling where you really need to have your methodology, your unknowns, your assumptions. You need to have it buttoned up or you will not be able to, to play, whether it's playing with customers, investors or being able to meet these regulatory requirements that are gonna to touch everybody in some shape or form. Yeah,
0: I'm curious, as a consultancy, you help people adapt to the new normal, right? This is us This is the way business use, needs to be. So you consult with them. These yeah, are uh, the tools, tools you need to use. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, do you get involved longer term and help them keep this new mojo
2: that they have going? Yeah. Well, there's in many instances I've I've played as a fractional ESG director for half a dozen public and private companies at a time at different stages of maturity, oh, different sprints of time. Very typically I'll work with a client for let's say three months to a year, depending on the pace and the size. And then I will work with whether it's a new hire or someone internal being put into that position, essentially be their player coaching with them and helping them get comfortable, confident, and capable. And then it's the keep carrying the torch and, and keep, best of luck and we're here when you need us. But our goal is to really engage, energize, empower, obviously get the work done, but have that really be central to the feeling that yeah. people get when they work with us.
0: Yeah, the things we do is, is very aligned and similar to what you guys are doing in some ways. I want to talk a little bit about ESG and leadership. I often use okay. a slide and talking to people because we know that when people get their values right. And I use the term heart and soul, you know, it's really got to come from within what these are. It's not a committee sitting in the conference room making up their values. They can be pretty powerful. So I have the slide that I use that says, and there's arrows pointing, leaders drive values. Values drive behaviors. Behaviors drive culture. Culture drives performance. Mm. So several questions for you. Share with us your experience and what you see, how important. Let's talk about ESG performance and leadership. Sometimes sometimes leaders go kicking and screaming into this thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean such an important topic. I'm so glad you brought up leadership in ESG because we know, right, that the fish rots from the head no matter what direction you're holding it,
0: right? My my bookkeeper told me that about 25 years ago. Oh,
2: no way. That's funny. I said, who is she talking to? (laughs) So, So you all know all too well that no matter what direction a company moves in, if it lives or dies, it's really coming from the top. And I would say some of the biggest challenges and opportunities is how does a leader engage and energize, right? The employee base in order to be both an active contributor and to adopt this stuff. Cause we know, right, Rocket, as you mentioned, right? Employees are critical to this. They can be the drivers of your ESG performance or they can be the whistleblowers that get you fired, CEO. And having them know that your intent having that say-do ratio aligned of what we're saying we're doing is followed by swift action. I think that is just table stakes at this point, especially when with hybrid work, it's like you could go work anywhere at any time at this point, which is a whole new way of working where leadership is really a way for talent retention. Folks, it's like that classic adage of people don't quit their jobs, they quit their bosses. Here's a chance for a boss to make the workplace, the core driver of self-actualization for employees by getting them involved and in really tactically speaking, they're also closest to the real work. There's been many instances that I've been in a boardroom and done the ESG board update and then gone to a facility floor and the head of facilities will be like, "I have no idea what what you're talking about when I ask, "How are those net zero goals coming along here? like how are you guys feeling? No idea what I'm talking about. So point being, both sort of philosophically and culturally, as well as tactically and practically, if leadership is not engaged and knows the picture and is actively socializing it, greenwashing litigation, labor walkouts, shareholders' suits, that's what the future's. I mean, that's what it is right now, but it's only going to no ramp talent up. talent
1: for the future. And no <laughs> talent. And
2: no talent. Not the best and brightest stuff yeah, there. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sort of interested in. I mean, I think that one of the reasons the CEOs and top leadership don't take heart in some of the companies, they're taking sort of, as Gary said, kicking and screaming at this point, knowing that regulations coming, they're, you know, like scrambling to get on board. But I think some of it is, is because they don't see that as something that they had to be concerned about. To run a company, it's not, wasn't part of the original competencies that they, you know, in business school or whatever was really, it wasn't on the radar screen. So you see the ones who are sort of holding on to the old way of doing business or the people that are on the front of the wave going, I see all this as an opportunity, not only the risk management. There's really a wide, um, sometimes I think that, you know, not only do those people have to dedicate the budgets to make this happen, but they also, it takes a little while to really buy in and want to make it the core. But in reality, it's one of the few things at this point that really connects all the departments from HR right. to operations to finance to it really has become something that connects them all, that they all contribute to. And I think that that's really exciting because we sort of lost it there for a while. We used to do Annery Forts. We used to be one of the biggest houses on the West Coast. And of course, that business, once, compliant, once the internet came, it became more of a compliance game. But I mm-hmm. always felt that, well, it's sort of sad that that happened because then... Everyone was just putting up the quickly, as quickly as they could, they would put up things on their website and messages and news and whatever. But that inner report that we knew really coordinated the corporate messages of that year where they were coming together and whether they knew it or not, they were creating their their platform of messages for the coming year. And once that became a compliance document, it was back only in one department, and it really wasn't touching all these players. So um, I'm excited about ESG reporting because of that. Um, Yeah, great point. Yeah, so I think that it can be core and central that it should be at this point.
2: And you have such a You make a really important point that maybe I'll touch upon very quickly, Gary, and then I'll I'll pass it back your way, is what you're calling out is that ESG performance is the ultimate team sport. You cannot play certain sports without these certain players. Every functional lead is required. Every function touches this stuff operationally. Every function has the data that's required for reporting in their own crevices. So I think what you're calling out there is a critical, another critical barrier is it is the ultimate team sport as well as the litmus test for management effectiveness in today's market. So yeah, great call out.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Well, so teams,
0: tribes, companies, groups, they typically have, or not, but a lot of those successful ones, they have a set of values that they all sort of believe in. And they kind of conduct their behaviors, their actions, ESG decisions, mindsets around a set of values. With the leaders that you deal with, what do you see in terms of using values as something that could be pivotal for aligning a company
2: around the issue? Yeah, I don't know if you're going to like my answer here, Gary, but I'll say it anyway, because I know you'd want me to speak my mind.
0: Yes. I promise that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I oftentimes, particularly with because I am by heart and soul an organizational development super fan. I believe in that work. I believe in it critically. Been a professional athlete, a military commander, an entrepreneur, a consultant. The inside game in the dynamics within the group is everything. That being said, people move around a lot. Sometimes, you know, when push comes to shove, hard decisions have to be made, and usually they're the worst evils. For the leaders that say, why are we doing this stuff? We're not a green company. We're not like that kind of company. I tell them ESG is not about your values, as in the value statement on the website. It's about value creation. Your customers have said that they want to know where you're sourcing products from. If you don't give them that information soon, they're going to find a product that will. Your employees are saying they want you to set net zero goals. They'll find an employer who will if you don't. So I think it's really about. How do you create value for both your business and your key stakeholders? And you can't really unpack the stakeholders from the business because without the stakeholders, you don't have a business. I think that's the core theme that I try to work with the more like hard headed type A personality CEOs. But that being said, the majority of the leaders that we work with, I think, thankfully, they see the future here and they've already seen that we can't even ask to go through the procurement process because we don't have these different policies, protocols performance measures. They see it as a practical element of just what business entails today. Yeah.
1: Well, I was just going to say that what you're saying that becomes key connects the areas of values and behaviors, that culture really has to be, they have to prioritize sustainability at this point. That's the new normal, or you're going to be left out, as you say, of the game new customers with employees, with communities that will allow you to do business. <laughs> I mean, all, all sorts of things like that. So values and behaviors and the value creation,
0: two separate, mm-hmm. but deeply interconnected tie. Right. So when you're talking to hard-headed business people, and so you're trying to talk to them about value creation in terms of what EHG, kids, the way they should be thinking about this instead of too many people think about, Mitigating risk. And what are the other business benefits of ESG that you like to advise people on?
2: Yeah. And I could rattle off the benefits and I will in a moment, but typically I'll ask a leader like, what's the Moby Dick for you? What's that big, big customer that you want to win? Nine times out of 10, they will say on their procurement requirements, these are the things we're asking for. it's alluding to environmental, social, and governance issues. It's pretty quick to have that aha moment with, are you fundraising? Who are you trying to fundraise with? Bam. Climate focused mandates, just part of getting, of working with them. B2B buyers. I'll give an example right now that we worked with one of recently finished with one of Amazon's major suppliers. They would not be able to continue working with them unless they went through an EcoVadis assessment, which is, you know, a third party sustainability assessment. So point being Luckily, today, it's getting to the point where it's quick to show the business case. But beyond that sort of aha, gotcha moment, the other elements that are just, I would say, a good practical example is we never had greater multi-year example of ESG management of COVID-19. We have labor shortages and talent shortages. Those are social issues. Those are real issues. We're having, it's like billions in, cli- in fire and flood damage, whether you call it an act of God or climate change, that's a risk you got to manage. You're seeing certain insurers leave certain states because they're seeing that they're just not going to be able to recoup their money. That's a business issue of not being able to get insured because you can't show that you're aware of these things. So it's kind of like every pressure point or requirement to run a business is impacted by this material in some shape or form. With the explosion of ESG regulations, which is how a lot of people first kind of heard, like, oh, what is this stuff? And all of a sudden we have to do it. It's trickling down to the suppliers that work with these companies. And if you have a certain revenue or headcount in certain countries, I mean, it's becoming really complex. So it's come to the point where it's like, ESG is perhaps the boardroom topic of our time because it touches every function and it touches every part of your business. And if, if there's no water left and if we don't have air to breathe, it's like, forget how you're going to spend your money, you know, It's like, What do we do there?
1: Exactly. You know, one of the things that I worry about and some, you know, we often run into is really whether people on the board have the expertise to even begin to understand polling. I mean, they're told, you know, they're brought in, educate the board, but uh, do they really have that competency to drive it?
2: Well, I think if you looked at the studies, you'd be spot on of all the studies that have come out around boards and management teams where it's like the headlines are always 20% feel comfortable in their climate capabilities of the board or half of people don't feel prepared for the disclosure regulations coming out. And I would say education right now is so critical for those leaders. And you'd mentioned my work with the Corporate Finance Institute. We and I, myself, as the instructor and we at Row Impact as their corporate partner, We've developed all the curriculum for their ESG certification program that BlackRock and State Street and McKinsey and Bloomberg and all the big groups are training on. And it's been the most highly requested training content that they've ever had because of the groundswell of interest. So I think it's really that at the point where it's like, if you don't speak the language as a manager and as a board member, you're going to really struggle to meet the expectations and requirements that are placed on you today because it touches everything. So yeah, I would say it's like what a time to upscale for senior leaders is like introduction to ESG at the corporate finance institute, free, rated number one, I'd say in the world, it keeps getting those kind of shout-outs as just the best primer for this work, because it's very much like we're talking about practical, tactical, and actionable. Yeah. So all the listeners, check out the introduction to ESG course. It's free, <laughs> globally taken, corporate finance institute. Going back to a topic that we touched on two weeks ago, I read an
0: article. About Ford and GM, that they lobbied the Trump administration in 2017 to weaken fuel standards while publicly touting their commitment to the Paris Accord. Last year, Microsoft was the only big tech company to endorse the Inflation Reduction Act, while others like Amazon and Apple remained quiet despite bragging about the green credentials. There's so many different forms of greenwashing, and I and once read a list of greenwashing and green this and green that and green the other thing, it seems to be so prevalent in some shape or form out there. Even subtle things like, you know, it's, whether they're conscious, I obviously think that they are. We talk a little bit about how do you advise to manage these kind of risks? How do we change basic behavior that has a tendency to do that because these companies are so
2: profit-driven That is a great question around the say you ratio, right? And what does it look like lobbying versus operational changes versus philanthropy to a cause that you essentially outsource that responsibility to someone else? I would say that at the end of the day, it's the resource, the resourcing that's attributed to that, to these aims, that is really like the KPI. It's if you are not allocating any resources to this work, there's a good chance you're not really doing any of it. You might be doing a lot of talking, and soon you're going to stumble while you're thinking you're walking, but mostly blabbing. The lobbying element is a great question because, again, it comes down to the say-do ratio and and transparency and accountability. If no one is holding the shareholders, for example, or the pension funds that are very, you know, most pension funds are pretty ESG-centric, they're the folks that need to keep the board's honest on these types of issues where it's like, we will take our purse strings and run if you don't do what you say you're going to do. And or we will sue you because that's becoming the point now where even a misunderstanding around an impact claim can get you sued. A great example is Oatly, one of the sustainability sweethearts of Wall Street, they IPO'd, they got sued. Why? Part of their ESG reporting was missing, you know, half their operational data from certain markets. So it looked much better than it practically was. Another example, similarly, is Allbirds. They went public, they got sued, they got out of it because of a misunderstanding around the methodology used to arrive at their claims. So there's a lot of grayness here, and I would say it's the shareholders, especially the ones that are running these big funds, these pension funds that have the power to explicitly put in a shareholder proposal, you will not lobby against this issue and then put other resources to doing it because we're losing money both ways. Right. Good question. And yeah. I wish I had a better answer for well, that. But-
1: money usually uh, the ears perk up. Right, right. So has a chance. But yeah, I, I mean, dedicating resources is key and so important. And for materiality studies, we always, people are like, okay, we'll do the, the ESG report. But we're not going to send money to do a materiality study or after the fact to really measure any kind of results. We don't have any budget for that. It's really hard. And I want to also ask you about the tools. How do you evaluate all these tools that are coming out for your ESG data?
2: Yeah, such a great question. I'm so glad you asked that because at Roland Beck, we do have two software products. So I will speak to that point. Quite frankly, you got to look, who put this thing together? And I say that half joking, half serious around, you wouldn't ask your electrician for investment advice, unless they're a, very, a great retail investor, <laughs> meaning what's the track record of the people behind the software? And I think that's one area that we have been really differentiated in at Row Impact is we've been doing this before. It was cool. And before people were quitting Facebook and Netflix to work on the climate crisis, we were already doing this stuff and studying it and living it. And that, I think, is a key difference when the rubber meets the road and people see how you play the game. They'll see if you just picked up the stick yesterday or if you slept with it since you've been a kid. I was a professional cross player, called a cross player, so he's a lot of stick sport analogies. Point being, you can tell very quickly how someone handles their stick. You can tell very quickly how someone speaks to the work and actually delivers on those results. And that's what I always say from... The software standpoint is, who are the people that put it together? It doesn't matter how great the AI code is. If the people who put the code together don't have the context or the domain expertise, that code is just a slick slick calculation or a slick dashboard, but it's not actually going to help you move the needle or understand this work in the context of your business.
1: And in addition, I find that a lot of things with mergers and acquisitions of larger companies getting into this game, they're back-engineered mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to fit into a legacy system. They're really clunky. So right. again, you're saying, yeah, look at the source, and then look how it ends up being used.
2: Yeah, I'll give you one example from our world quickly, oh, then I'll pass back to you, Gary, here. Oftentimes, when we're talking about our software, the Gemini software platform, a digital version of all things ESG happening at a company, all of the fundamentals built from what we train at CFI and all that curriculum, is do you really want your ESG performance to be handled by folks that are working on CRMs? Because this is not a CRM. This is much more complicated in customer relationship management. This is organizational transformation in today's market. I mean, that's ultimately, we're talking about managing significant change. So if you're looking for a quick press easy button for this work, you're not going to find one because it's not that kind of work. Yeah, And
1: it's just only going to get more and more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to doing business. And you're absolutely right about that. So there's, it used to all be a nice to have, but it's an imperative now. And people mm-hmm. are just going to have to understand that and dedicate the resources to really play that game. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: You do a lot, Noah. Does one of your companies get involved
2: in disclosure and reporting? So at Row Impact, we do. ESG reporting and disclosures. It's not something that we loudly bang the drum on just because everybody does that. So it's not really how we differentiate, but it usually is an outcome from, what I'd say the real work of, let's help you start to operationalize this stuff, get some customers from this, fundraise, get some real ROI, both on the return on investment and return on impact. But we're not, I wouldn't say we're like an Edelman ESG practice, which is doing the really slick looking reports. Yeah. We do do it, though. Yeah. Right.
0: You got this fabulous. So is there anything that we haven't touched on that's important to you that you want to talk about?
2: Yeah, you know, maybe I'll have like one parting message is that ultimately executing on the fundamentals of ESG for all the managers and senior leaders, CEOs out there. Not only is this the vehicle for leaving your personal mark on the world, it's the vehicle for making sure there's a mark left for your grandkids. And as a young father of young kids, I can't overstate that, that it's like, this may be about quarterly earnings today, but it's about your grandchildren tomorrow. Yeah. What drives you? What's your why? And so many people don't get that.
1: Yeah. And the commonality I find is sort of contrary to the differentiating differentiating in business that everybody wants to have. because the ESG stuff really boils down to that better future for all of us. And the collaboration I find really interesting how often the innovation that's coming out of ESG work as far as like new products and new streams of revenue, they really require more collaboration between Mm -hmm. companies. And I find that very interesting as far as What's going to come out of that for
2: the future? Yeah, that's a great point. It's a sort of the ESG performance internally is the ultimate team sport. And then addressing the world challenges that are creating those problems, that's the ultimate sort of global game we're playing right now.
0: Okay, Noah, this is the parting question. We're going to talk to you five years from now. What are we going to be talking about? What are some of the topics of the day five years from now?
2: We're going to be talking about how every single ESG practitioner in the world is following our curriculum and fundamentals (laughs) and every single ESG software. But what we will be talking about perhaps just business because this will be so integrated into the norm that it's like, I remember when we used to call this stuff ESG and now it's just good business. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's It's a big part of our corporate brand strategy. It's not only about marketplace positioning, it's not only about purpose and values for a corporate brand. It's also about their sustainability strategies and the difference they're going to make in the world and their commitment to that. That's It's really part of business. It's a big, big part of business. And the more businesses understand, as we talked about earlier, the value creation for all, the better they are.
1: Yeah, it's interesting just to add on to that. That's the difference that we sort of see in reporting, obviously, we it's one of our categories of business. We do corporate brand, we do ESG sustainability reports, we do people one cultural related mm-hmm. things within companies. And that's often what we find is that our differentiator is really how we bring the corporate brand into the ESG report so mm-hmm. that people mm-hmm. understand. In it, it further communicates the alignment of your right. actual business strategies and business model. Often, other firms and things, they don't have that background in creating corporate brands. So they don't quite understand it as much. And what they miss are some of melding those corporate messages into the ESG report where you get that authenticity that a company's really committed to this instead of just checking the boxes of the categories of what they have to present and disclose in an ESG report. Well said, absolutely. Right. So terrific
2: talking with you, Noah. Likewise, thank you for having me. And yeah, it's been terrific. Right. I greatly appreciate your time. Let's stay in touch. We'll stay in touch. Will do. And I'll keep an eye out for the recording and all that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be sending that. Okay. Okay. Thanks Noah. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening. This is just a reminder to follow doing sustainability wherever you get your podcast. And please leave a rating and review if you like the show. It helps others discover us and of course we want more listeners. If you want to learn more about our agency Baker
0: and how we can help you build your corporate brand align your culture and evolve your ESG reporting, head to bakerbrand.com. See you in the next episode of Doing Sustainability, where we focus on practical and actionable approaches to sustainability to create long-term value.